Please pray with me. Father in heaven, I pray that you would give us grace for just this few moments to glimpse what you are doing through your Son. Amen. Today we're actually celebrating the baptism of Carolyn Ann. And for those of you who don't know Carolyn, she is the great-granddaughter of Mickey and the granddaughter of Joe and Judy, three of the original members of our church. It's a really special moment to have four generations of a family together worshiping is actually a testimony, a beautiful reminder of the fact that God works through families. I imagine that as Carolyn looks back on her life, she will see that her faith has been marked by those who came before her. And that's true for many of us, is it not? We can look back and see how our faith has been affected and marked by those who came before us. It's a testimony to the fact that God works through families. It's important to remember, though, because in our attempt to honor and protect families, it's important to remember that God actually works through singles as well. The history of the early church was that the entire world was evangelized by people that God called to singleness. And it was actually singles in monasteries that became the hospitals and theological training centers and protectors of the doctrine of the faith in those early years. God works through singles and through families. But right now in this baptism, we see that God does indeed work through families to pass the faith onwards. And that's actually one of the reasons why we baptize little children, why we baptize infants. You see, in the Old Covenant, the Jews were commanded to bring their infants into the covenant by circumcision and then to teach them to live that covenant out as they grew up, to teach them to trust, love, and obey God. In the New Covenant, and we see this most clearly in Acts 2 when Peter preaches the sermon at Pentecost. And the New Covenant, when people clamor and say, what must we do to be saved? Peter points to a new initiation in the covenant. Not circumcision, but he says, repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. There is this new initiation in the covenant of baptism. But in case people were wondering whether, like the old, they were supposed to bring their children in with them, the very next words out of Peter's mouth were, this promise is for you and your children. In other words, bring your children with you. Like the old covenant, the responsibility then lies on the parents. And this is a responsibility for y'all and for any parent that we are to teach them as they grow to love, trust, and obey God. God lets them come in, riding, as it were, on the coattails of their parents' faith. Paul says this directly in 1 Corinthians 7.14, where he says that the children of a believing parent are made holy. They get to ride in on the coattails of their parents' faith. He's content with that for a season. He even does this in one weird moment with an adult where a crippled man is before him and his friends have had great faith. 
And the gospel says that Jesus, seeing their faith, said to him, son, your sins are forgiven. There's moments when he lets people ride into forgiveness in the covenant on the coattails of the faith of others. But just like in the old covenant, over time they have to stand up into that faith themselves, claim it as their own, trust and obey to repent. It's true that no matter the age they're baptized, there are some that walk away from their baptism. And without faith and repentance, it ends up profiting them nothing in the end. They're still marked as Jesus' own. The way that a child who rebels against and abandons his or her family is still a member of that family. They are still marked as Jesus' own. But they lose the blessing and the protection that would have been theirs. In the same way that a child who runs away and renounces his parents is still his parents, but has lost the privileges and the blessing and the protection. This points to the fact that the burden is upon us to continue to pray for those who've walked away. Because God is patient, and oftentimes after years of wandering, people return to what was given to them at a very early age. The burden is to pray for them, to teach them, to call them back. My point in all of this introduction is very simply that in their baptism, because God is working through the faith of their families, because the Lord Jesus Christ says himself, let the little children come to me that I might bless them. In their baptism, something is going on that is more profound than we realize. This is not a rite of passage. It's not just one of those things you do. In this moment, the child is truly being joined to Jesus Christ. Clothed in him, in the words of Galatians 3. Buried with him, in the words of Romans 6. In this moment, the child is being joined to Jesus Christ and made new. And because of that, in this moment, the child is being given the full blessings of the kingdom of God access to the Father through the Son, the gift of the Spirit, the forgiveness of sins, the blessings of the kingdom are offered. My point in this introduction is simply that this is more than we think, and that more than we think will continue as we move through 1 Peter 2. 1 Peter 2 is actually a description from a different angle of what happens to us in our baptism. There's three images that Peter uses to describe what happens to us when we are joined to Jesus. In verse 4, you see this phrase, as you come to him, and the beginning point of this whole passage is that you were joined to him. But in that joining, we see three images. The first is that of living stones. Jesus is the living stone, it says, but when we are joined to him, we are turned into living stones. And then we are built upon them, we are built upon him to become God's house, his temple. In other words, the place where his presence dwells. We will come back to this in a moment. But the fact that we become the place where God dwells should astound all of us. Thoughts that we take for granted too easily. The image shifts from the temple to a holy priesthood. And again, Jesus is the high priest. 
But when we are joined to Him, when we are joined to Him, we become a holy priesthood. God's ministry agents in the world. We become God's representatives to those who don't know Him. A privilege that none of us deserve. But when we are joined to Jesus, this is what occurs. And then the last image is the image of a chosen race, a holy nation, a people of God's possession. This is a reference to Israel itself. And again, Jesus is the only true Israel, the only begotten Son of God. He is the only one who deserves this title. But when we are joined to him, we become the holy race of God, the people of God's possession, the family through which he brings blessing to the world. Because that was the destiny of Israel, after all, to bring God's blessing to the world. Peter is reminding the church of its identity. And it's important to remember that he's writing to a persecuted church. He's writing to a people who is being knocked down and hurt. They feel like exiles in the world. And he says, you are actually God's holy race. You are the people of God. You may feel like an exile, but you are actually the very nation of God on earth. And through you, he's bringing blessing to the world. They feel rejected and mocked. And he says, you are actually God's priesthood. You're the way that I've chosen to minister to the world. Through you, I will reach the world with forgiveness. You can imagine some of them hearing that and saying, how in the world, because I'm being mocked everywhere I turn. They feel abandoned. They feel alone. They feel in danger. And he says to them, you're actually God's house. You're not alone, for he dwells with you. You are the place my presence actually dwells on this earth so that people who are lonely can actually find me through you. It's easy to hear this description, and I apologize that I'm moving faster than perhaps I should. But it's easy to hear this description and think, oh yeah, another, another reminder of the things that I'm supposed to do. I'm supposed to be God's presence in the world. I'm supposed to be a, a priest for God in the world, bringing his forgiveness and truth to those who don't know him. And I'm supposed to be part of the people of God, bringing the blessing of God to the world. Those things are all true, but actually none of them are Peter's point in this particular passage. This passage is actually not a description about what we are supposed to be doing. This passage is actually a description of what God is doing. This point seems subtle, but it's my hope and longing that you actually hear it. This passage is not about what individuals should go do, and it's not even a passage about what God is doing through individuals. Properly speaking, this passage is very simply a description of what God is doing through the church. After all, you can't build a temple of one single stone. You can't build a race of one single individual. All of these descriptions are what God is doing through the church. The only command given in this passage is in verse 2. And it is very simply long for the pure spiritual milk. The only command in this passage is that we would actually be hungry for God's gifts. That we would long for Him. 
The passage is actually about what God is doing. Of course, we're called to participate in what God is doing. In faith, hope, and love, the church is called to actually join in with Him, to say yes to Him. And of course, we all know that we are perfectly capable as individuals of resisting what God would be doing through us. Whole churches can resist what God is doing through them. When a church refuses to obey God, there are moments when God actually removes his presence. In the language of Revelation, there are moments when he pulls the lampstand from the church because they've refused to participate in what he's doing to follow him. In other words, there are implied commands in this passage. But the only actual imperative here is to long for the pure spiritual milk. This passage is fundamentally a description of not what we are doing or what we are supposed to do, but instead what God is doing through the church. With that in mind, think back on those three images. The image of the temple. The image of the temple. The place of God's presence. Through the church, God is making his presence known in the world. A world that doesn't know him. A world that oftentimes doesn't want to know him. This is actually what it means that we are his temple. You think about the stones in the temple. The stones in the temple cannot brag and say to themselves, oh look, I was chosen to be here, for they did not do anything to deserve that. But in that building, in this drawing together of people, God says, through you, I would actually dwell in the world. Of course, he is everywhere, but he is present in his temple in a unique way. So that people who are outside, lost and broken, who don't know which way is up or what is truth, might at some point turn and see there is the presence of God there. The church, the temple, so that God might reside in a sanctuary and be present with a world that thinks it's been abandoned or thinks that God doesn't exist. The second image, that of priests, The world doesn't know how to approach God. There is a gulf between man and God. We did not know how to approach God. There is a separation that we could not overcome by our own skill or our own wisdom. But through the church, through this priesthood that he's called together, he communicates his love, his forgiveness to the world. Through the church, not by its own strength or merit, Through the church, the Spirit actually prays to the Father on behalf of the world. Oftentimes, we don't even realize that this is what God is doing. We are so ignorant and blind to the majesty of what he would be doing. But he has not left himself without a means of communicating to mankind and of turning and praying for mankind in the needs of mankind. The world is blind to the fact that it needs God's blessing. It doesn't know how to get to that. But through the church, God says, I will continue to bless the world. I will continue to do it through this holy people, this chosen race that I've chosen, these people that I can stir up, sometimes even against their will or without their knowledge, 
to bring goodness to other to others. My point in all of this is what Peter is saying is that God is doing something that is more than we expect. Through this little group, he would actually communicate his presence to this community. Through this little group, he would actually communicate his forgiveness to people who need it. And you think of all the people that you know who desperately need that, who are lonely, who need the presence of God, who need his blessing. And he says, through this little group, I would do that. Not just through this, but through the church universal. He says, I will do these things. This is why I've called you together. Again, this is about what God is doing. It's not given in an imperative form to us. We are, of course, called to participate in it. And we can resist it. We can devalue it. We can forget it. And we all know far too often churches that have forgotten this and stopped caring about this. We all know far too personally all the times that we have disregarded this. And all the times we've said that thing is of no value to me. But Peter's point and the point of this passage is very simply that through the church, God would actually be putting his presence in the lives of people who don't know him. God would be bringing his forgiveness to those who need it. And God would be bringing his blessing to those who are hurting and lost. We need to be really clear, though, that God does not do this because we are anything special. I want to talk highly of the church, of what God would do through it, but I want to talk just as clearly that this is not because we are good, are special, are particularly faithful. It's not because we are the ones with strength or wisdom or power. God is doing these things through the church for one reason and one reason only. He is doing them because Jesus was the obedient and faithful one. This is actually the thing that undergirds this entire passage, that undergirds that image of Jesus as the cornerstone. That Jesus is the actually only living stone. He is the foundation of the temple of God. That he is the only place where the presence of God dwells with humanity. And these things are only true of us because we are joined to him. It is not about us in the end. It's about Jesus Christ. Jesus is the only perfect and faithful high priest. He's the only one who actually has faithfully continued to minister God's forgiveness and love to those who don't know God. He's the only one who's actually ever prayed for humanity the way that we all ought to be praying for humanity. He's the only priest who's never fallen down or failed in his duties. And yet, because we are joined to him, he would work that ministry through us. Again, it's not because we are special. We are of little account. But joined to Jesus, he would do things that he alone can do. He is the only chosen race, the only perfect Israel, the only true son of God. He's the only one, in other words, who actually can bring blessing to the world. But if joined to him, he says, I would honor you by using you as a place of my blessing. The point is that these things are only true because they are true of Jesus and not of us. That makes all the implied imperatives in this passage 
clear. The only direct imperative is long for him, and that suddenly makes a great deal of sense because these things are only true in him, so long for what he gives. And the implied imperatives to trust him, to obey him, to come to him, and to proclaim his excellence, those things make a great deal of sense when we realize that all of this is only true in Jesus Christ. This may seem a long way around to make a point, but my point is that Carolyn is actually being brought into something that is greater than she realizes. Because if she is actually being joined to Jesus Christ in this moment, the whole reason for existence is shifted. All allegiances are new. All identity is remade. This is, of course, true of all of us who've been joined to Jesus. Our identity is new. Our calling is different. And it's a calling to turn to Jesus and see him as the only true fulfillment, the only one who can bring blessing, the only one who can communicate God's presence to the world, the only one who can handle the brokenness within us or within our community. But because we've been joined to him to recognize that he is free with his gifts and would do these things through us as we turn to him. And so like Peter, let me say to you very bluntly, Long for the pure spiritual milk. Quit chasing a meal that cannot satisfy. Quit looking for things that don't do what they promise. Long for the milk that comes from Jesus himself and trust in him. Amen.